Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to United. My name is Aaron, and I am one of the pastors here, and it is good to see you this wonderful Folk Life weekend. If you've made your way down to the Seattle Center at all in the midst of all the rain yesterday that we had, yay, rain. Folk Life is happening. Make sure you try and check that out. Go with a couple of people this afternoon. I'm sure it'll be fun. Uh, with all the concerts and the bands that are playing this weekend. So enjoy that as a big communal experience here in the neighborhood here in our city. We're continuing in our series called Insurgents. We've been looking through the entire Gospel of Mark week by week. We haven't necessarily been going chapter by chapter. We've been kind of lumping multiple stories together at a time to see some of the themes that Mark, in his writing of the Gospel, is trying to present to us, show us, that is taking place in the midst of this Gospel, this good news about who Jesus is and what it is that he really came to do in this world, that, that actually what is taking place here is this gigantic insurgence in this world, this, this, this huge move of the kingdom in the world to recreate this world new, to change the predominant narrative that has been taking place of oppression and of, of persecution and of pain and of suffering, and to flip that on its head and show something radically different that is emerging in our midst that you and I are not only a part of, but that we get to play a role in doing and being and participating in together as a community and as a people because of who this Jesus is. What I love about the Gospel of Mark is that this isn't actually something that took place in a vacuum. I think sometimes when we approach Scripture, when we approach these stories in the Scriptures, these stories of Jesus, they can become just that. They become little folk tales. They can become these uh, fables of sort, Aesop's fables even, right? The story of the grasshopper, right? It's something so much more than that, that actually these stories of Jesus took place in a particular time, at a particular place in history, and sometimes we can remove ourselves so much from the history of what has been taking place and takes place in the midst of these stories, in the midst of this life that was lived and continues to live today. We can remove ourselves so far from that that we miss the point of what was taking place. So today, I want to situate us in the history of what was taking place at this time because it is super fascinating. Not, not only is it super fascinating, the history that is surrounding what is taking place in Mark, but it really amplifies this story and this insurgence, this battle of kingdoms that is taking place, this battle of empires that is on, ongoing and on the move. So at this point in time, it, what is taking place here is Jesus has been born into a brand new empire. 
Now, the Roman Republic is something that had been extended for hundreds of years, for centuries at this point in time. Like it had just gone on and on and on. And with the ascension of this guy, Caesar Augustus, with the ascension of this guy, the Republic turned into something vastly different. It turned into an empire when this guy, Caesar Augustus, was named emperor of the empire. Now, the Roman Republic was really fascinating because it had seen nothing but war. It was war after war after war after war, all in an attempt to expand its boundaries and borders, to take over more and more land, to get more taxation so that people like Julius Caesar, if you've read Shakespeare, you know this play, right? So that Julius Caesar and other Caesars of the time could gain more power. However, it was all done underneath this Senate, this body of people that deliberated and decided how things were going to be done. Well, after Caesar died, his, there was these struggles for power that started to take place. And eventually, this guy was named as the next Caesar. He was named as the very first emperor of Rome. And what's really fascinating about this guy is that when he was named emperor, he was actually elevated by this senate, by these del this deliberative body. They elevated him as Zeus incarnate. This guy right here, this Caesar Augustus, this beautiful bust, this beautiful marble bust, right? This man was elevated as a god. This man right here was given divine authority to rule over the empire. You, sir, are a god, is what they said to him. They, in fact, built temples throughout the empire, in Asia Minor and in Syria and in Macedonia and these different places. They built these temples in his honor to where people would then come in and offer sacrifices to Augustus. And not only would they offer sacrifices, but then they would pray to him. He's still alive. He's not dead. He's still alive, and yet they built these massive synagogues to him. These temples to where people would rush in, offer their sacrifices, pray to him, and ask that he would deliver them from their evils, from their ills, from their pains. The priests... That, that worked in these temples, the priests that were the ordained of these temples, were, they addressed him as a founder of a new race of gods. And Augustus is the world's savior who was to come. Everything that they had waited for, everything that they had hoped for, all of these wars that had been taking place throughout the Roman Republic were now going to be put asunder because Augustus had come to bring peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Phrases that were utilized on coins and in vernacular to worship this new deity, this new God. In fact, in fact, what's so fascinating about this is like they, they communicated a lot of this propaganda throughout the empire on coins. 
they would have these coins minted. And one of the coins quite literally had on there that, that, that Augustus was the son of God. That, that when Julius Caesar died, he ascended to heaven as a god. But then here comes the son of God. Caesar Augustus. And they minted it on there, a comet of, of Julius ascending to heaven. And here is his divine child, Augustus, who is here to bring peace to all the world. In fact, Virgil, Virgil was kind of like Augustus's hype man. You could call Virgil like the DJ Khaled of his day, right? DJ Khaled, right? Like it's over and over and over. Like that's all DJ Khaled does is like he says his name and then he says, yeah, you keep telling him. Yeah, you do it over and over. If you watched him on Saturday Night Live the other day, oh my goodness, that's all he did. And he had like 15 people come out, six or seven. Anyhow, I digress. That's Virgil. That's Virgil. He was like a major poet, one of the greatest poets of the Roman Empire. And Virgil wrote all sorts of stuff about Augustus. He called him a divine king of salvation who will annihilate evil and free every single person. He will just free him. He will come and bring peace, which they called the Pax Romana. It was this universal empire of peace is what Augustus was coming to bring. And Virgil even said of Augustus that the ox and the lamb will lay side by side together in peace and in harmony. That there will be no more enmity between people or anyone. In fact, not only this, but Augustus will restore all of nature. That he will restore all of creation. That Augustus will be the one that wipes out all of the poisonous plants. That he will be the one that wipes out all of the poisonous snakes. So that together we can reside in the paradise of pastures together. In world peace. Now what's fascinating about Augustus is he actually expanded the empire. So at this point, the empire was growing, but it was growing because Augustus continued war. He expanded the empire all the way up to Britain, out to India, northern Africa, all of Macedonia, like all of the Middle East. Like this was the Roman Empire and all of its glory and all of its expansion and all of its things. And if only you would submit to Caesar Augustus, if only you would submit to his ways, this would bring about peace. If you submit, we will have peace. If you give up everything that you have, we will have peace together in our time. Nature will, will be at peace. People will be at peace. You yourself can find peace internally. And you will have peace with God, with Augustus because you have submitted your way to him. Four very strong areas of peace that will be there. And here is Jesus, born into this environment. In fact, there is some coins and, and some sayings out there that, that there will be no, uh, there's no name under heaven and earth by which men may be saved than Caesar Augustus. Which is funny because that's also what Acts says about Jesus. There's no name under 
which men may be saved than Jesus, right? So like there's these, these interplays that are taking place between this kingdom, this empire of Rome, and this kingdom and this empire of God that has come into this world to change things for the better. And so here we are in Mark chapter 4, where we pick up this fascinating story. If you remember, there's, there's four things that Caesar came to bring peace to. Nature, each other, the self, and God being Augustus, right? So those are the four things that Caesar came to bring peace to. And here we are in Mark chapter 4, in verse 35, where Jesus calms the storm. This is a really, really super interesting story. It's a super interesting story because Jesus and the disciples make their way onto this boat and they want to just cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That's all they're doing. They're getting on a boat and making their way across, but Jesus has just gotten done teaching an awful lot. And so he's tired. And so he makes his way to the stern of the boat and he wraps up on a cushion and he falls asleep. And as the boat makes its way across the Sea of Galilee, a giant squall just erupts. And all of a sudden, this boat is being tossed back and forth and back and forth. And it's such a vicious and violent storm that the disciples are terrified. Now, what's really fascinating about this is that the disciples were fishermen. They had known, they, they know well what it means to be on a boat in a storm. They know how to take care of themselves on a boat in a storm. They know how to get across safely. And in the midst of a storm, all of a sudden, they are terrified because it is that bad of a storm. This is something unlike they had probably ever seen before. I can imagine these 12 men all of a sudden grabbing buckets to just dump water out of the boat because the waves are literally crashing over as the boat not only near teeters but almost flips over left and right as the waves toss them as the wind swirls about, as the lightning and the thunder crash, and all of a sudden they can just find themselves nearly drowning in the midst of it. When they call out to Jesus, when they say to him, hey, wake up, buddy. Don't you care if we drown? Don't you care about us in the midst of this? What are you doing sleeping here? Help us bail water. Help us get out of this, which is funny. They're at their complete wit's end. They have no idea what to do here. And they ask a carpenter by trade. Fishermen asking a carpenter, help us out. We have nothing left. We don't know anything else to do. Save us. Do you see the weird sort of paradox there? The, the, the tension, like they have nothing left to do. And Jesus, Jesus got up. Now, he's sleeping, right? He's tired. I can imagine that when Jesus gets up, he's a little groggy as he's like trying to catch his balance as the, the boat is moving. And he just kind of looks up at the clouds and the storm. And he says, be quiet. <laughs> when Elliot comes and wakes me up in the morning, and she's loud. <laughs> Be quiet! Just shush! I'm sleeping. When I take a cat nap on the couch because I've fallen asleep during an NBA game or a soccer game, right? 
just be quiet. I can imagine this is Jesus's sort of like anger and frustration. Shut up. I was sleeping, right? Be quiet. Be still. Which is the, the word quiet when Jesus is saying be quiet. He's actually saying put a muzzle on it. It's the same sort of word, like the word has the same imagery as if you were to put a muzzle on a dog. Like just stop barking. Just quit raging. And immediately, immediately the winds calm. And the waves begin to recede, and they go back down to this stillness. And the disciples are looking at this Jesus like, what just happened? We just wanted him to grab a bucket. And he just yelled at the wind and the waves. And now it's quiet. Who is this man? Like, all of a sudden, they're freaking out because they're like, who is this guy? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. But Jesus, before they think this, he looks at them and he says, he says, where's your faith? Where's your faith? Don't you believe in this? Don't you believe in what you have been seeing? Because at this point, the disciples had been traveling with Jesus for a while. They had seen some things. And if you're tracking through the book of Mark, he's already like, done some like, exorcisms. Like He has healed people of demonic possession. He has healed people of leprosy. He has healed people that were paralytics, that were paralyzed, that could not walk. All of a sudden, he has healed these people. He has done some things that are a little out of the ordinary. And now Jesus is saying, look, where's your faith? You've seen some of this stuff. Look at this. Jesus in that moment, stands counter to Caesar. This is Caesar who says, trust in me, follow me, sacrifice to me, worship me, and I will put nature back to rights. You will be able to walk through the fields of paradise together with me in peace. And Jesus says, I'll show you what that looks like. This massive storm is now silenced. It is quiet. These men who were absolutely terrified for their lives are now left befuddled and dumbfounded. Who is this man? But then the story doesn't end there because they stop. They finally make their way to the other side of the, of the sea. They make their way to the other side. And I, I can only imagine the conversations that are going on between the disciples at this point, right? Like, the wind and the waves stop, and I'm guessing they were somewhere in the middle of the sea. They've got another half of the journey to go, right? Have you ever gotten in a fight with somebody in a car and you're only halfway there? You sit in silence for quite a bit, right? Like, you sit there and you're just like, you just kind of fume and team, and you're just like, I'm not talking to you anymore, right? I can imagine that these disciples are a little ashamed and yet still like completely like floored at what happened. They're like, I'm not talking to him. You talk to him. Oh, I'm not talking to him. You talk to him. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Nope, just let him go back to sleep, right? Just let him sleep. 
Let's just get to the other side and see what happens once we get there. And the minute that they get there, the minute that they arrive, this demon-possessed man, who is completely naked, by the way, and has nothing but shackles on his arms and legs that have been broken because of the brute strength that this man possesses, who lives in, like, the rocks and the caves by the sea, who is not allowed to go into the town, comes up to Jesus. He runs at Jesus, and he cries out, to him, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God, son of God? What do you want with me? He fell on his knees. He fell on his knees and asked, what do you want with me? Why are you here? Leave me alone. <laughs> Now, the people in the town were terrified of this man. They banished him outside of it into these hills because who would actually live in the catacombs, in the tombs among the dead? Because he would cry out day and night. He would cut himself with stones and run around shrieking. And Jesus looked at him and he said, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, hey, what's your name? What's your name? Not to the man, but to the demons that were inside of this man. He said, legion, for we are many. In fact, there were so many that Jesus cast these demons not, not back to hell, but cast them into the pigs that were nearby. Over 2,000 meaning there are over 2,000 demonic spirits residing in this man. That's a lot of demonic spirits, right? Like 2,000, 2,000, 2,000. Cast them into these pigs and they run away and all of a sudden this man is like, whoa, this is great. What? just happened to me. But every single person in the town saw this man who was completely transformed inside and out, who now was no longer at war with himself, was no longer at war with who he was, but all of a sudden, oh, he was good. He was fine. And the people saw that when they're like, whoa, what is this dude? We don't know what just happened here. And Jesus says to him, he says, hey, this is what I need from you. Just go home. Go to your own people. Don't worry about this anymore and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you, how he has changed your life inside and out. So the man went away. And he began to tell all the people in the Decapolis, which are these 10 cities that are kind of really close together. It's almost like, like if you think of like uh, the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, right? It's like 10 cities like that that are like clumped together, the Decapolis. How much Jesus had done for him. And all of the people were amazed. Jesus transformed nature. And then Jesus transformed this man who now understood who he was as he delivered him from his affliction. But it doesn't end there, because this is great. 
Now, all of a sudden, Jesus gets back in the boat, and he goes to the other side, and here he is just walking. He's walking along when a man named Jairus comes to him and says, Jesus, my daughter, my daughter is very sick. Would you please come and make her well? And Jesus says, yeah, sure. Let's go do this, right? Now, here's, here's what's really beautiful about this. this. This daughter is only 12 years old. She's 12. She's lyrics age, right? She's 12 years old. She's not in high school. She's, she's just barely in junior high kind of thing. She's 12 years old. And Jesus begins to walk with him. And Jairus actually fell at Jesus' feet, just like the demoniac, right? Just like the, the, the man that he just delivered from Legion, fell at his feet and earnestly plead with him, come and put your hands on him, she'll be healed and live. And Jesus started to make his way to Jairus' house. And this large crowd was like, we're going to see some stuff right? They've already seen, on, on this other side of the Sea of Galilee, they've already seen Jesus do some stuff. They're like, let's go again, <laughs> right? Like, Jesus is like the greatest show of entertainment at this time, right? They're like, dude, we're bored. Jesus is going to go heal somebody. Let's go see him heal somebody. This will be great, right? So, like, this large crowd just begins to press in around him on all sides. Is there, everybody's just trying to get closer and closer and closer to him. Just to kind of hear him talk about some things or ask him questions, to learn some things or maybe even be healed, which is exactly what a woman does. A, a woman who remains nameless, who remains nameless. We have no idea what her name is or who she is, but she gets close enough to Jesus. She had been hemorrhaging blood. Basically, she had just never stopped bleeding from having her menstrual cycle, just had never stopped, meaning she was unclean, meaning she could not be around other people. She was completely separated from others, completely separated from others, could not be in right relationship with anybody because of this affliction. And she believes, if only I can touch the hem of his garment. I don't need Jesus to touch me. I, I don't need him to say anything to me. If I could just grab the bottom part of his robe, of the cloak on the outside of him, if I could just touch it, I know that I will be healed, that I will be able to be restored back to others, that I will be in right relationship with everyone. And that's exactly what she does. She reaches out and she touches the hem of his garment, and Jesus stops. And he says, who just touched me? Now remember, there's this crowd that is pushing in on Jesus. And the disciples are like, really? Who's touching you? Everybody is touching you. Don't you see? We're trying to play crowd control here. And there's 12 of us and we're encircling you. And people are just reaching over and underneath. And they're just touching you and they're pushing you. What do you mean who touched you? Jesus, you've done Right? Like, they're just like, Jesus, you have, man, what is wrong with you? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Who touched me? And he kept looking around. He kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, knowing that she had been completely healed, 
was now her fortunes have changed and she's now able to be in right relationship with everyone, came forward. She came to him and trembling and in fear and fell at his feet and told him the whole truth. She spoke her truth. She told the whole truth, meaning she spent time with him sharing the entirety of her story. This is what my life has been like. This is where I have been. This is what life has been like for me. And then for some reason, I touched you because I just believed that you would do something. I just touched you. And you fixed it. Like you restored everything. I don't get it. I don't understand And he said to her, daughter. This is perhaps one of the most beautiful words in all of Mark. It's the first time that Jesus speaks to someone with such an affectionate term. Daughter. Daughter. My girl. My love. Daughter. If you have daughters, or even sons, I guess, but really, if you have daughters, it makes so much sense. The weight of that word. My girl, your faith, your faith has healed you. Remember when the disciples were in the boat and Jesus said, where is your faith? Now we have this woman who touches him. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has freed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Oh, Jesus transforms nature. Jesus transforms us internally to understand who we are at our very core. And Jesus restores relationships between us and everyone else. And while Jesus was talking about this, while Jesus was speaking, people came up to Jairus. Jairus, who had just moments earlier been pushing Jesus, please, please, please come and see my daughter who is dying. She is on her deathbed. Please come and speak life that she may live. Just touch her and heal her. This this Jairus, who is named, which is fascinating, he's named, he's been tugging on this Jesus to bring him, to bring him to his daughter. When the officials come and say, Jairus, let's not bother him anymore. Your daughter has died. And Jairus in that moment, who had done everything. And now there is this woman who just touched him and Jesus stopped the world for her. Jairus looks at her. You killed my daughter. If it hadn't been for you, we would have still been walking. We, we could have made it on time. We could have been there. We could have. We could have. And Jesus looks at him with all of the compassion and with all of the care that he possibly can. And he said, don't be afraid. 
Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And Jairus continued the walk home. I can't imagine what's going through Jairus' mind. I can't imagine the anger that he feels towards the woman. I can't imagine the, the frustration that he feels. Why on earth, Jesus, you healed her? Why wouldn't you just keep walking anyways? Who cares? Just go. Jesus cares. Jesus stops. And yet they make their way to the house, and out front there is a, a cacophony of people just wailing and screaming in grief. And Jesus looks to them, and he says, Why all of this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but merely sleeping. She's just asleep. And they laughed at him. What's funny about this word laughed is the first time that it occurs in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 17, when God tells Abraham at 100 years old that he's about to have a kid. Hey, Abraham, I know you're 100, but you're about to be a daddy. Yeah, right, whatever, uh-huh, yeah. First time that this word actually occurs is that kind of laughter, that kind of absurdity, that kind of mockery, whatever, God. The second time it's used is when God tells Sarah that she's going to be a mother at 100 years old. And she's like, oh, yeah, right, God, funny, closed for business. Right? Like, that is not happening now, God. I don't know what you're talking about. And she laughs. And here, they laugh at Jesus like, yeah, right, like she's only sleeping. Whatever. Whatever. That is so ridiculous. And yet Jesus goes in, and he only takes Peter, James, and John with him, and he only brings the parents with him. And he goes to this girl who is laying dead on her bed, and he says, get up. She does. She gets up out of bed. And he says, hey, get her something to eat. She's probably pretty hungry. That's <laughs> such a funny phrase. Get her something to eat. Get her something to eat. She's probably pretty hungry. Just like with Abraham and Sarah, just like with them, that new life was about to burst forth, and they laughed at it. New life burst forth in this little girl, and the crowd laughed at it. Yet Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed the relationship of death to life, which is the reversal of the curse in the garden, which is the reversal of the curse that we were all afflicted with because of sin. That in the midst of this, God says, no, 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 no. We will move from death to life. Just believe in me. Put your faith in me, and we will move from death to life. And here we have this Jesus who stands completely opposed to the Roman Empire, who says, who, who Rome says, nature, I got this, right? You, like how you understand yourself, I got this. How you will worship me and be at peace with me as Caesar Augustus. I got this. How you will have peace with everyone if only you would just submit. I got this is a Jesus who doesn't just say it, but does it. Jesus puts 
everything back in order. Jesus transforms this kingdom. He transforms it all. He transforms this world around us. And he says, look, this is how it works. This is how it works. But then it gets even better. Even better. Because in the midst of this, Jesus then sends out the 12. He sends out his disciples and he says, now you go do this. You go put this world back to rights. And he sent them out two by two. He sent out all of the 12. And what it says in Mark chapter 6 is they did that and they healed people. They cast out demons. And they proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God here and now. That Jesus transforms everything. And he says to us, you are a part of this. This world that is being put back to rights, you are a part of this. Go do it. Go be it. Because the world needs it. In his book, Prodigal Christianity, David Fitch, David Fitch writes this. He says, we must become the instruments through whom not by whom, through whom God's reign becomes visible. You see, this kingdom of God is not a spectator sport. This worship of Jesus is not a spectator sport. It's not something where we just sit down and believe that this insurgence is going to unfold around us, that the world is going to be transformed around us at every turn. That is not what this insurgence is about. It is about you and me being sent out by the king on the Missio Dei, the mission of God into this world to be the people through whom, through whom God's reign becomes visible. We make the kingdom of God visible. We show the world the kingdom of God unfolding all around us. We make it so that the veil of darkness is pulled back and the light of God's peace, of his love, of his mercy, and of his grace because of Jesus' resurrection, because he still lives today is made visible to all. You see, Caesar Augustus and his empire, it no longer is there. It's over. Caesar Augustus died, and then another emperor ascended to the throne, Tiberius, and then another emperor ascended to the throne, Claudius, and then another emperor ascended to the throne, Nero, and then another, and another, and another, all the way to Domitian which is the last emperor that was alive when the Bible was written. I think it was seven emperors, and Rome fell. Rome fell. It no longer exists. But Jesus raised from the dead, and he said, this kingdom still exists, and you are my ambassadors. You are my people to make this visible throughout the world. Now go and be and do 
And this is what you and I get to be a part of in how we live, how we love, how we interact, and how we are the insurgents, how we change the world. God, let us be those people. Let us be a people who make a difference in this world. Let us be a people who change this world. Let it be through us that this new kingdom is manifest, that people see over and over and over the goodness of who you are. Father, may it be through us, but by your power, by your spirit, and by your son. It is in your son's name that we pray all of these things, that we ask all of these things, and that we live by all of these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.